thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We have long known that obesity is a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea, but most sleep clinicians don't directly manage obesity. Is this something we should consider? How complicated is it? How should we navigate insurance hurdles? Do we need to employ a dietitian? Is this feasible for a typical sleep medicine practice? Here to explore this further is Dr. Rafael Sepulveda. Dr. Sepulveda is board certified in internal medicine, sleep medicine, and obesity medicine. He is the founder of Sleep Fit Medical, Sleep and Weight Management Center in Sonoma, California. He offers a comprehensive approach and is here to help us better understand how obesity care may be perfectly aligned with sleep medicine care. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Seema. Thank you for um, having me as a guest today. And uh, I hope that we can, uh, you know, get some information out there. So we're not afraid of treating the disease of obesity. So tell me, so what came first for you, sleep or obesity medicine? Uh, sleep medicine. So first I did um, my fellowship in sleep medicine. And then once I started uh, medical practice, um, then I started kind of getting interested in the risk factor that, you know, obesity presents in patients with sleep disorders. Uh, and then basically started searching for opportunities to, you know, give a better service and a better outcome to my patients. Ah, uh, so that's why you decided then to do obesity medicine. So do you have two practices? Like do, te- do, do you sleep and wait in the same clinic or do you have two clinics or how does it work? No, so I, I practice um, both of them in the same clinic. Um, I would say right now it's around 60% sleep medicine and 40% weight management. Mm. Um, so it's a combination of both. It makes the day very interesting. <laughs> I bet it does. So do you only treat obesity in people who have a sleep disorder? No. So, I mean, in general, obesity medicine can be treated in any patient that has uh, a BMI higher than 27 um, with uh, comorbidity, uh, Mm. which is, you know, could be, you know, sleep apnea, uh, could be high blood pressure, diabetes, um, uh, heart failure, heart issues. Um, and uh, if the patient is has a BMI higher than 30, you can uh, treat it even if there's no comorbidity because we know um, that it increases uh, mortality and health risk um, in the long run. What was the process to become board certified in obesity medicine? Well, there's two different pathways that um, any physician uh, can pursue in order to become obesity medicine certified. Um, So there is a fellowship uh, available around the country Mm. um, where you can uh, train for a year. um, And, you know, after that seat for the obesity med boards, uh, or you can do it through a a CME credit uh, type of fellowship, uh, as the American Academy Uh. of Obesity Medicine calls it. so basically, that that CME pathway includes um, around, I think it's sixty credits, mm. um, and then you do a conference um, and uh, any CMEs that are related to obesity or comorbidities related to obesity. So, do you need to be 
board certified in obesity medicine to script anti-obesity medications? No, in reality, um, any physician can prescribe anti-obesity medications. Um, it, basically, it depends on how the complexity of the, of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, if the patient has a lot of comorbid conditions and, you know, we're sometimes limited in terms of time when we're uh, with the patient. So uh, at times it's better uh, to do a more overall comprehensive approach and set up a, a, a visit for uh, or just talking about their weight and, you know, what happened in the past, what's their oh. history with weight, uh, what's currently happening or what are the main struggles. Um, and stand, start with, you know, some nutritional plan with kind of concrete goals. So I'm going to share my bias with you. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just kind of wonder if maybe some clinicians may be a little bit gun shy, given what happened with FenFen. So, for, you know, I'm pulmonary crit care sleep. Mm-hmm. And so yep. when I was in my fellowship, my attendings were really negative about medications for weight, you know, because it created pulmonary hypertension. And we just, mm-hmm. we were kind of taught to steer clear. So I'm wondering if that's sort of outdated now, you know, like how should we be thinking about these medications? And is this, is this feasible, right? Is it something I can add to my practice now or do I need extra training? What does this look like? I think from my experience, I would say that it's, if, if, if you know, any provider is interested in uh, learning how to uh, do an overall approach to obesity medicine, I think it's very much encouraged to pursue um, a fellowship or a board certification. Just because, you know, it's uh, obesity in general as a disease is a very multifactorial uh, uh, disorder, uh, meaning that there is nutritional issues that every patient or struggles that they could have. There's physical limitations or physical activity limitations that they might have. There's a lot of behavioral components to uh, to the status of their weight. Um, and... In, in order to understand the tools that we have and how to use them, it's very important to get the information for the other uh, three branches of mm. managing obesity medicine. Mm. So you kind of talked about looking at their history with weight loss. Is that part of your approach? Yeah. So usually um, what what when a patient comes for an initial visit, um, either... Uh, for weight management or sleep. Um, for sleep, if I notice that there's a problem with with weight, I just kind of do kind of like an open open ended question. Like, um, it's um, you know, is it okay to talk about your current BMI? Um, do you feel like this is uh, something that we need to approach? Um, but if they come for an an initial uh, weight management uh, visit. Basically, we go from everything from their past medical history, meaning that this started in childhood. Uh, mm. This started when you were an adult. Um, is it something that happened after menopause? Um, was there any traumatic event that started uh, some sort of binge eating behaviors or emotional eating? Uh, and then you kind of open the conversation to a more... Uh, 
structured kind of mm. what is your nutrition from the moment you wake up to the moment that you go to sleep. Uh, what are your capabilities in terms of physical activity? Um, and have you tried any any kind of programs in the past? Um, what is the environmental um, things that are affecting your weight? Mm. Um, and you know, from there you can start kind of getting an idea of, of how to uh, initiate a, a logical and plan that would allow the patient to pers- be pursued through the entire lifetime. So that's really interesting how you approach a sleep patient, right? Because it's almost like you're asking permission to delve into what, you know, typically can be pretty sensitive versus yeah. the person that shows up at your door saying, hey, I need help with my weight. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think it's, it's. Um, I try to do a, a little bit of motivational interviewing techniques mm. where I basically kind of just ask them, like, where are we at now in terms of what have we tried? Um, why do you think that, you know, um, we need to approach this? What are the benefits to doing this? And what are the, the hurdles that um, you currently have in order to uh, pursue a healthier body weight? Um, and that kind of opens the conversation to a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, that report kind of opens up and that's how you can really help them. Uh-huh. So how do you think about medications? I mean, do you categorize them? Um, how do you maybe have sort of a go-to that you do first? Or how should we be thinking about the different categories of, of obesity medications? Yeah. So, well, I mean, uh, the first step is to establish a nutritional plan, a physical activity plan, and a behavioral modification plan. And with that, if the patient struggles for the first weeks of the program, uh, then we decide, hey, we need to add something to support uh, your hunger Mm. or support your metabolism. Um, In terms of categories, basically, we we have uh, what we call uh, FDA approved. uh, And and within those, we have the short uh, usage medications. um, And then we have kind of the off-label anti-obesity medications. Um, so first, I mean, the, the the first one that comes to mind when it's short usage is fentermine, uh, which is actually uh, very interesting that you mentioned fenfen um, and, you know, the struggles that happened. Yeah, and, and absolutely. Came up. So, uh, so fenfen is another component. Uh, fentermine, it's part of that medication that was called fenfen. So basically, fenfen was the combination of fenfluramine with fentermine. Um, and the one that triggered uh, pulmonary hypertension uh, was fenfluramine. So now when they separated the components, uh, they basically noticed that there's no evidence of you know pulmonary hypertension with fentermine. Uh, there's uh, no evidence of babulopathy patty with or, or problems with the heart in general with the use of fentermine as long as you use it short term. Um, ah, so, so what short term mean? Short term is defined uh, by three to six months maximum. Ah, okay. Of usage, yeah. So, um, you know, with fentermine, there's, you know, not being uh, documented uh, evidence of patients having addiction or withdrawal. Um, and it's basically a medication that we use it in order to um, 
promote metabolic uh, enhancement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it should be uh, as a sympathomy medic, it should be you know monitored and and done appropriately. Um, so most patients um, have used that medication in the past, uh, mm-hmm. at least in when they come to my clinic. So um, some of them uh, used it for a short period of time. Some of them just didn't tolerate it well. So uh, it just depends on uh, what the situation is with every patient. So short term, three to six months, and then is that it forever? Or can you do it again the following year? So you you can do it in uh, in short intervals. Um, so basically the approach is uh, if you are using a short-term medication, uh, you use it for the three months or the first 12 weeks. And during that time, you assess what is the total percentage of total body weight loss within those three months. Hmm. Um, if that reaches um, a 5% of total body weight loss, then you can continue it for another three months. Now, oh, if it's if it's not really working, then that's when you have to consider either changing the medication uh, or combine it with um, with other anti-obesity medications. Oh, okay. So you sort of try it with that. And then if it if you have success, you continue So for six months. So then yeah. what do you monitor? Do you have to get an EKG and look at their QT interval? Do you do urine drug screens? So basically the first step when you get engaged in, uh, in an obesity medicine program is to do a whole panel of labs, which include a CBC, a CMP, thyroid function test, uh, lipid panel, um, and uh, hemoglobin A1C, mm-hmm. um, and you do an EKG if the patient has, um, you know, a cardiovascular disorder. Uh, if the patient, for example, has a documented like heart issue or lung issue, uh, most of the time we actually ask for. Uh, a cardiology clearance or a pulmonary clearance oh, uh, wow. to start to start the weight management program. Interesting. Okay. And so then, what? So so aside from fentramine, what what is the next sort of thing that you consider? So um, so there's you know the long term uh, anti obesity medications. There's different different groups there. Um, so there's. Um, Orlistat, which is kind of one of the oldest um, anti-obesity medications. Um, and basically, uh, that medication, what it does is like cause some malabsorption of fats. Um, and um, that's why we don't use it that much in, in uh, medical practice, because it causes a lot of fat-soluble yeah. vitamins deficiencies. I and, remember that. Uh, a lot of kind of uh, bowel movement. So, mm. um, it's a little bit more restricted in that sense. Um, then, uh, there's, uh, Lorcaserin, which is Belwick and, uh, that's a serotonin receptor agonist, uh, that basically what it does is it's, uh, increase, uh, satiety and just, uh, reduces, uh, hunger. Mm. Um, is that an injectable then- or like an oral? It's an oral, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, there's also uh, the combination of fentermine with topiramate uh, at extended release that the brand name is Kissimia. 
Um, so um, that one, it's pretty pretty much used by a lot of obesity medicine physicians. Uh, it has a very good outcome uh, if the patient uh, tolerates it and escalates it well. Um, basically, you start kind of like a low dose, and uh, after two weeks, you increase it. Um, and then after that, uh, you basically assess how much percentage of weight loss they have achieved with the medication. Uh, oh, and that's so, what I'm you sensing decide a theme. To... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's like you, you'd have to basically monitor what the outcome is, um, mm. in every visit. Uh, at the beginning, we see patients between one to two weeks, uh, for a couple of months, then monthly, then, uh, depending on how they're doing then we kind of space it out. Uh, okay. So, um, but it, it all depends on the outcome of the medication itself and obviously if any adverse effects are, are noted. Okay. So then what's next? And so then is there anything you monitor with that medication? So um, basically the main things is uh, at the beginning, we always do kind of like a pregnancy test uh, oh, okay. in females. Um, you know, we every three months we kind of do a, a whole set of labs uh, if if possible, um, and uh, basically do monitor any kind of clinical symptoms that the patient might have. And at that point, you decide if you're going to, you know, decrease the medication, if you're going to stop it, um, or if you need to switch to another anti-obesity medication. So do you, I guess I'm trying to equate it to how we treat hypersomnia, right? You kind of start with one and then you assess right? If they're doing okay, but you're just, you know, you're a little better, but not all the way better than you add. Is that a similar approach? You know, you yes. start with entermine, maybe add Qsimia? Yeah. So, um, so basically if we were to add fentermine, um, basically Qsimia would have the combination of fentermine and uh, topiramate. So oh, oh, uh, basically okay. you stop the medication and you just use the extended release version of it. Um, and basically, what we monitor a lot of the time is the total percentage of total body weight loss. Um, I kind of um, forgot to mention that at the beginning of the of the plan, the goal is to achieve uh, a ten percent of total body weight loss within those three to six months of therapy. Oh wow! Uh, so that's okay. So the reason for that is um, when the ten percent is achieved, you actually reduce the health risk uh, re related to with obesity. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can go above that 10%, then you are, you know, decreasing that risk even more. But uh, the goal is to, within a three to six month period, um, to have um, a weight loss that it's 10% or more. Okay, that seems pretty significant. It is for a lot of patients. Uh, huh. So, um, you know, uh, if, for example, the patient has a baseline BMI of 27, then, you know, that 10% necessarily is not needed uh, because they'll probably achieve a BMI of below 25, um, and that would be considered healthy um, before that they reach that 10%, right? So, uh, so then when that happens, you switch to uh, weight maintenance state, mm. uh, just monitoring how the patient is doing. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about obesity management and sleep medicine practices. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. The ICSD-3 TR is here. 
This new product is the premier clinical text for the diagnosis of sleep disorders. This text revision was based on an extensive review of the current literature and features new and updated information in the text of each chapter, minor corrections, and some criteria changes. Visit learn.aasm.org to purchase. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Sepulveda about obesity management in sleep medicine practices. So you had touched on a couple of different medications. What is the next one in your tool belt? Um, well, the next one is uh, the combination of naltrexone bupropion mm. uh, in an extended release, which is Contrave. Um, that medication uh, came up in like, I think 2014, if I okay. uh, recall correctly. And it's basically um, an opioid antagonist in combination to basically a, a dopamine blocker, uh, which uh, what it does is an appetite suppressant. Um, and, you know, this one basically is the same thing. We have to titrate it over a couple of weeks. Um, so basically you start lowest dose and then increase the dose weekly. In some patients, uh, we set, we kind of spread that out monthly depending on how they're tolerating it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is mostly for patients that um, have, you know, comorbidities such as depression, for example, um, and uh, have, you know, more of a problem with appetite or binge eating behaviors. Um, but it tends to work pretty well. Um, you know, it's been shown that at least, um, most of the time they reach at least a 10% of total body weight loss with this medication. Um, and then we go to the GLP ones. <laughs> so that's what kind of got me interested in this. You know, I was at a conference and a bariatric surgeon talked about how effective these medications were. And then she really encouraged us to consider adding these to what we offer in a sleep medicine practice. Yeah, I mean, uh, the GLP-1s basically revolutionized the the world of obesity medicine uh, in a big sense. You know, it's like having, you know, more tools in order to do your job, right? Mm. Uh, So, so yeah, GLP-1s and uh, and now the the combination of GLP-1 agonists uh, with uh, GIP agonists, which is uh, Munjaro. Uh, it's, it's been life-changing for a lot of patients and, um, personally, I'm glad that we have more tools now than when I even took my, my obesity medicine board exam. (laughs) (laughs) So how do they work? So basically, um, what they do is in patients that don't have diabetes, what happens is that, um, the GLP-1 agonist basically works in the hypothalamus to, uh, suppress hunger, um, hmm. which is a little bit different in a diabetic because the diabetic basically needs to have that stimulation of GLP-1 receptors uh, in other parts of their body, not necessarily their brain. Huh. Um, okay. So, um, so that's why you know you see things like semaglutide that you know have certain indications for diabetes versus the indication for uh, weight loss, mm. um, which is kind of something that is confusing to uh, a lot of practitioners. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's it, right? And and I think we've kind of heard, you know, the Ozempic shortage and Hollywood is using it and it's a sort of miracle, 
<laughs> medication yeah. and, you know, patients get started on it and, you know, have, you know, sometimes wonderful results and then their insurance stops paying for it and then they regain the weight. And so how do we navigate all of this? Oh, that's a, that's, that's a long-term, uh, <laughs> that's a long-term question. <laughs> um so, I mean, there's different ways of, of addressing it. I mean, luckily we have different tools that we can use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, within within the GLP ones, there's, you know, different types and different indications, right? So you mentioned Ozempic, for example. So Ozempic, mm-hmm. even though it's semaglutide, um, it's only indicated for patients that have diabetes type two. Okay. Um, and Wigovi, which is the uh, same, semaglutide, but that one is FDA approved for weight management. And the oral version of that for diabetics, um, which is uh, Rebelsus, um, that it's oh. indicated for diabetes. Well, so how do you decide what, I mean, I get Ozempic versus, you know, like the FDA approval, I get that, but how do you decide which one to try? Is it sort of a formulary thing or? So basically it comes from, from, uh, from the labs, the uh, evaluation for the patient. Like, mm. for example, if I have uh, a patient that uh, comes in already has uh, a diagnosis of diabetes, uh, it might be struggling with their glycemic control. Uh, then at that point, we review uh, their medications and kind of figure out hey, maybe Ozempic is a good alternative for you. Okay. Um, then if the patient doesn't have in their labs or in their prior history a diagnosis of diabetes, then at that point, I know that I need to, if if I'm considering a GLP-1, I have to pursue Wigovi as a, as a medication um, oh, for that. Oh, I see. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and in terms of coverage, it's been kind of pretty challenging. Uh, the root of the problem uh, is that um, CMS... Uh, have not recognized obesity as a, as a disorder state or as a disease state. Mm. So because of that reason, uh, coverage of uh, anti-obesity medications is considered preventive and not necessarily of medical necessity. Um, but from the obesity medicine perspective, we're trying to treat uh, a long-term disorder that is mostly uh, an endocrine disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we have all these tools, and uh, sometimes it's a it's a struggle to get coverage. But um, we basically try to use all the tools in our toolbox to, in order to yeah. make it work for the patient. So you know that's interesting. I read an article. I thought it was in JAMA, but don't quote me. It was somewhere where they kind of talked about how there's been a shift in mindset where obesity is not felt to be a willpower issue, but rather a chronic medical disorder. That's correct. Well, there's a lot of um, research just um, even even with, with sleep and, and obesity. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, when a patient has sleep deprivation, for example, their, uh, their leptin hormone decreases. And the counterpart of that is that ghrelin, which is uh, the hormone that makes you hungrier, hungry mm-hmm. and, and has more um, of an appetite enhancing action, um, increases. So that makes the patient eat more. Um, and 
you know, it becomes a cycle, right? Um, and the opposite happens if, if basically, if the patient has obesity and has a, um, a sleep disorder, they're more likely to have a sleep disorder. Um, so, for example, a patient with a BMI of more than 30, um, around 30% of those patients is estimated to have a diagnosis of OSA. Mm. Uh, and if a BMI is higher than 40, then there's different data there that says that it's higher than 50% and up to uh, 98% in, in some uh, studies. So, um, so there's a correlation there between one and the other. Mm. No, I get that. It, it's so, it's, you know, on one hand, I feel like there is this, you know, growing momentum toward, you know, this mind shift in terms of obesity. And it's my understanding that there's a bill in Congress that is hopefully, you know, going to encourage CMS to recognize obesity as a disorder and, there, and then cover medications. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a rumor or not. <laughs> I was so speaking with somebody uh, that said that. There's actually a lot of advocates in the obesity medicine association mm. uh, which is the equivalent of the asm for us okay. um there there's a lot of um work they're trying to do um to change this mm. um and hopefully it will happen soon because there's um, a lot of patients um waiting to get that help so it sounds like there is, um, so there's a clinical piece of what you do. And then it sounds like there's a lot of sort of admin stuff in terms of, um, you know, getting meds approved. But then I'm also thinking about, you know, you mentioned nutrition. So does this mm -hmm. mean that you have to have like a dietitian and like additional staff then to manage this? Well, that's in a perfect world, Seema. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, right now I, 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 in my clinic, uh, basically, it's me, myself, and I. Mm, um, I feel that. So <laughs> I, I basically do kind of all the nutritional advice. I create their nutritional plan, um, physical activity plan. Um, but when you go to big weight management centers um, inside of hospitals, um, basically, there's this approach that, you know, I mean, it varies from every clinic, but mm. there's this approach that they basically see the obesity medicine physician for their first visit. And then the next uh, week, they see the dietitian and structure what the prescription oh, was sure. from the doctor. Then the week after, they see their, um, their coach for physical activity. Um, and then week after, they see a psychotherapist to address behavioral components or behavioral modification. And then after a month, they see the doctor again. <laughs> ah, so could you outsource that, you know, to like the local dietitian and the local psychotherapist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I we definitely could. Um, mm. I, I like to have my plan kind of covered. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's part of obviously creating that rapport with the patient. Yeah. In, in my mind. Yeah. Um, and having them be able to open up and just, if they're struggling with something, being able to just tell me and, and then we can work on it. Um, like yeah. So is this all insurance or is this cash pay? So it's a combination of both in our okay. practice. Um, I would say that probably 70% of our patients are, uh, insurance based. Mm. Uh, including uh, Medicare and, and commercial pay payers. Um, 
and uh, the cash base is basically patients that either uh, don't have insurance coverage uh, or they are in another network uh, oh, here I in see. California, okay. like mm. like Kaiser Permanente or or Sutter Health, and you know basically they're reaching out to um, a medical weight management program outside of their network. So, what do you think about the direct to consumer models like Calibrate and Row? So, um, I mean, I think it's a good tool for certain patients. Mm. Um, I actually have patients that you know do the in person. Um, medical weight management program and they do some sort of you know um kind of web-based type of program as well Uh, i think in in some cases it's very supportive especially with the behavioral modification component Um, a lot of the time i think the in-person um accountability uh with the provider it's a big part of the success um, and, you know, in, in my case, I, I find that a lot of the programs that are uh, kind of more digital or commercial can be a good tool even for the weight management patient and doctor to, you know, see what's what's working and what's not working. So how do you figure out, um, and, I, and I suppose this is sort of related to how we manage other medications, right? You, you talked about how do we figure out what's working, what's not working. Um, you know, these DLP medications, they seem sort of miraculous, but I imagine they don't work for everybody. So like, how do you figure that out? Is it just tolerance? Like what side effects do we monitor for? And and do we expect that same sort of cadence of weight loss? Yeah. So um, when we're using, for example, DLP-1s, um, the, the, the process is you start at the, the lowest dose of, of the GLP that you choose, right? Okay. Um, and then uh, you escalate every four weeks uh, until you get to a therapeutic range. Um, and that is determined by the patient's BMI, um, as well as the total body weight loss from visit to visit. Um, uh, and then um, after that, basically what you do is that you keep the patient at that dose and make sure that that total body weight loss uh, from visit to visit is adequate for their treatment um and then a lot of the time um you know what to monitor for uh it's mostly uh you know in in terms of glp ones um the main common side effect is it's nausea especially Mm. with their when they kind of have a higher uh a higher dose um so you know, GI symptoms are very important. Those are preventable a lot okay. of the time. Um, you basically have them in a schedule that is not affecting their daily life. Um, obviously, with that group of medication, because of its action, we try to encourage patients not to have high carbohydrate meals uh, oh, okay. because they they do uh, worsen uh, the GI symptoms. Um, there's also a lot of data um, with, you know, things like uh, cholecystitis and pancreatitis is a oh, very wow. minimal, yeah, okay. it's a very minimal percentage of, of uh, adverse effects reported. Uh, but obviously we have to monitor all of that between visit to visit. Um, and then uh, the other uh, caution to have is any patient that has um, 
a family history of MEN2, uh, mm. medullary cancer of the thyroid. Um, again, very rare type of uh, thyroid cancer, but it's something that needs to be approached with all GLP-1s uh, okay. and discussed with the patient. Okay. So when you talk about GI side effects, is it like metformin GI side effects or is it sort of delayed gastric emptying stuff? Yeah. So it's it's basically kind of um, most of the time it's, it's bloating. Okay. Uh, a lot of the time is, you know, watery stool, um, usually happens in the first two or three days of the, the injection, the weekly mm-hmm. injection. Um, and usually, um, it goes away after a few days. Um, but you know, in, in that case, when a patient reports something like that, uh, we want to make sure that we check up with them pretty per- periodically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at that point decide if we need to, you know, lower the dose for a longer time, uh, or the patient is able to continue at the same dose. So if somebody is successful, they lose weight, right? And then presumably mm-hmm. their BMI falls under the threshold where they qualify for the medication. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then, yeah. then what happens? Do they just have to stop it? And then do they rebound? Do they gain weight again? Um, so, I mean, uh, obesity is an endocrine disorder. So there's a, a likelihood that they will regain weight mm. uh, when they stop the medication. So uh, we, for example, the GLP-1s, most patients are uh, using it for a long term. Uh, in some cases, what we can try to do is um, basically keep the dose that the patient is using um, for a six months period and see how they do. And if they are kind of underweight at that point, then you basically uh, start kind of titrating down um, almost the same way that you titrated up. Oh, that's Um, interesting. Okay. mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting because it's like right now, uh, since the GLP ones haven't been in the market for that long, Mm. there's not really a a complete protocol, uh, but uh, most of, obesity trained uh, physician uh, basically just titrate down uh, or keep the patient, if they're don't, not having any adverse effects, they keep the patient in the medication at the same dose. And um, as long as they're not becoming underweight, it should not be an issue. So if this is something that we want to kind of, you know, dip our toe in the water, <laughs> what advice mm-hmm. do you have for us? Should we just, you know, is, is there is there a mechanism to do a little bit of it or should we do formal training and become, you know, board certified in obesity <laughs> medicine? Um, from my experience, I definitely would encourage uh, physicians to um, become board certified in obesity mm. medicine. Uh, I think there's a room to at least start the process of getting the patient in a, the right direction. Um, the reason why I'm saying that it's it's good to have a board certification in, in obesity medicine is because, you know, we're dealing with a multifactorial endocrine disorder, right? Mm. So, um, so it's always good to see the different perspectives uh, and not only treated with pharmacotherapy, um, you know, and there is a lot to talk about with the patient when, when we're, um, you know, working with weight loss, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, the, the behavioral component part, which is what's going to help that patient keep the weight down in the long run. Right. Um, so, it, 
in the regular clinical practice for a sleep physician, I would say that, you know, the first thing is starting the, the conversation mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, explain that, you know, in terms of um, sleep disorders, you know, weight loss, uh, if they're having a high BMI, is uh, important to try to reduce the the risk of that uh, sleep apnea, for example, getting worse or mm. uh, the obesity hypoventilation syndrome getting way worse. Um, and once that conversation it's it started, um, you know, depending on the complexity of the patient, either you know refer to an obesity medicine clinic or start the patient in, in a medication that um, that they could tolerate well. Mm. Um, or even suggest it to their primary care physicians, um, just, you know, something to kind of, uh, bring the whole team of providers together. Well, I like that. I like that you're respectful of the different, um, components to this rather than just sort of, you know, pulling out the prescription pad. So I think, um, you know, you've given us a lot to think about. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's things that you know you learn over time. Like mm. um, there's there's you know we like to say that you know there's not a magic pill in in order to treat the patient with obesity, um, because every patient is different, and the 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 reason why they have a, a high BMI can be something as simple as you know taking a medication that they needed for mm. you know hormonal reasons or. Um, you know, a certain traumatic event that started some behaviors in terms of eating. So mm-hmm. if, if we don't approach that, um, then, you know, the medication really can't do uh, the job properly and get them to a better health state. Well, thank you for joining us today and helping us better understand the importance of obesity management in sleep medicine. Thank you, Dr. Kosleff, for having me in the in the podcast. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.